Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. All right, welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Very excited today to have uh, Hillary McClinton in here with us. Uh, Hillary uh, was my supervisor in a number of different contexts, so it's going to be fun today to talk about supervision with Hillary. Uh, Hillary was my one of my BCBA supervisors, and then when I went in to become a supervisor of other BCBAs, she provided mentorship for me, and I'm super grateful for that. So. She does a lot of neat things that I haven't seen other folks do with supervision. And so I'm looking forward to kind of diving in and unpacking that stuff. Um, so Hillary, thanks for, thanks for being here. Maybe just start by telling us kind of how you got into uh, the field and then um, what led you to kind of uh, get into supervision as part of your practice. So my journey. So I started working in the autistic community many years ago, I started as a BI, which I think a lot of people do. And I answered an ad randomly back when there were ads in papers and stuff. I answered an ad because I was doing, I had a bachelor's degree in psychology and I was working at Starbucks as a manager because I just couldn't figure out what I wanted to do in the field of psychology. And applied behavior analysis wasn't in course curriculum. It wasn't really discussed. You talked about behaviorism, but in terms of the applied part, what you could do with it, it wasn't really a topic. Um, So I answered an ad and I started working as a BI. And I did that for a while under a consultant that was not board certified. And, you know, looking back, did a lot of stuff that was yucky and and then started um, working with different consultants and started working in schools. So I started to work as an EA in a school. And then I started to do my, my experience hours, and I did those in a residential home, um, in a residential setting. And then I finished my hours, and then I was done supervision. And then I started working on my own and did a mix of different things and tried supervision for a while because it was kind of the thing you were supposed to do. You got certified, and then people were contacting you, and then you were supposed to supervise. But And this, again, when I was supervised, this was way before there was any curriculum and way before they had kind of changed the standards um, and given us a little bit more guidance around what we were supposed to do and what it was supposed to look like. And I failed a lot at supervision. I just didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea. And and I did some good stuff. I I, I definitely had some supervisees that that we did some good stuff and, and I learned from them and hopefully they learned from me. But now I think it's a place where I find joy. I think it's a, it's a place where I've, I figured out what I like about it. I figured out, I hope has the needs of others and a way that makes me comfortable um, in what I'm doing. I, I don't, well, I shouldn't say I don't. I sometimes run into imposter syndrome, but I'm a little bit more confident in what I'm doing. Um, so now I do supervision in a bit of a different way. And I'm looking to kind of launch a different model in the next couple of weeks. I'm just working on getting it up onto the website. But that's kind of how I got into this field and how I got into supervision. Right on. That's a, it's a interesting parallel for me in the sense of, I also had a BA and, and I continued to work at McDonald's after I got my <laughs> BA. Uh, there right. were, there were, there were no jobs available. I grew up on the East coast where I think sort of the ABA and, kind of autism community was a bit behind things. So 
that would have been this would have been a great job for me to slide into. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and so you, you kind of mentioned. I mean, I, I know, and uh, you, you were. This doesn't really age you. It just sort of ages the autism kind of community in BC. But when you became a supervisor, I think this was probably at a time where there probably weren't a whole lot of people doing supervision, at least uh, locally. Would that be correct? Yes. Yeah, that would be correct. I think and so, I, I became right. certified in 2009. That's oh, okay. when I yeah. asked the exam and became certified. Which, which doesn't seem like all that long ago um, in, the nope. whole, in the whole scheme of things. But for, you know, a community that's sort of, you know, just sort of developing in that area. And as soon as you become supervisor, all of a sudden everybody wants to be supervised because there's now someone there available to do it. And so I can see how one might just jump right into supervision afterwards. But that's not really something these days that, uh, as I listen to a lot of the different podcasts and webinars on supervision, mm-hmm. that uh, is recommended anymore. I, I know it, it used to be you could basically get your BCBA and take the eight-hour supervision course. And I think there was some other little course you could do too, or you had to do as well. And then boom, you were a supervisor. But mm-hmm. now, I think now is, is there, there's now, I think, a, a, is, is it, a, have they implemented the minimum? Is there like a minimum now time? Or? There will be. I believe it's either next year, 2022. Mm. They are going to put in a minimum that you have to be certified for a minimum before you can. Around the time that I became certified, I mean, it was difficult for me to find another supervisor. I had one. I did try to find others, but they were full. Mm. I think there was a time period there where, it, there was still a shortage. Mm-hmm. And often what happens, and, and I don't think it's it's something that just happens here. I think it's something that happens everywhere, but I think more so probably in smaller kind of places is you're supervised by the person that you work with. So you you take a job as a BI and you start working and then you you just are supervised by that BC that you started working with. And I think now that there are more options, it's a good idea to interview think about your niche and what you want to do and go find the person that does that and out multiple supervisors if you can. Um, because I think you kind of get stuck in one way of doing things and, and one way of seeing things when you stay in one place. And it's not that you don't learn. It's not that you don't become a good practitioner, but are you really exposed to all the things that can make you a great practitioner? And I think that's important to think about. Mm. So yeah, that's interesting. So multiple supervisors kind of versus one. So you, you think multiple is kind of the way to go. And that makes sense. I mean, I had, I think I had four different supervisors by the time I finished, mind you, I know for me, it wasn't sort of around variety. It was around availability. I, I worked for, again, for one employer and, uh, you know, they kind of just rotated through supervisors for some reason um, and eventually got to you, which, you know, I was grateful. Uh, and I was grateful to have multiple supervisors, but I don't think that would have been necessarily the option uh, working working in an agency, you know, if they weren't leaving for some reason. <laughs> so it just, it, just sort of, it, just well, sort of, it just sort of worked out that way. Yeah, and working privately, you have to consider that to be supervised and to gain experience and competence, you need, you need a caseload. And mm-hmm. so if you're, if you're working privately in the way that things are set up here in BC to be on the RASP list, there are certain requirements mm-hmm. in order for you to practice and be able to bill under a certain category, et cetera. So you do kind of need 
for somebody? You do need to work with their caseload until you kind of have the ability to now build your own caseload and working with that. Um, so there's kind of a, a model that has developed in our, in our province that is a bit different than it would be agency-based. Mm-hmm. Where maybe you do have access to more BCBAs because there's multiple working in an agency. Mm-hmm. Whereas private, you tend to be with one because um, unless you unless it's like a cohort of BCBAs that work together, but you end up with one. Mm-hmm. You kind of go with through your career. Yeah, you know that that's that's interesting too. So, and yeah, the yeah, so, so for folks that don't know, like in BC, we have sort of this. Uh, I think most of the BCs, the sort of the the BCs in BC um, that are getting supervision tend to be doing this in kind of the the that under six kind of category because that seems to be where all all the funding is, and so you do get those like that situation like you said where you know you folks have to be on the caseload of the person. It's all based it's all based on the funding and the billing, which I still don't understand. I don't work in sort of the early intervention. Uh, area, uh, thank goodness. I think just only because of the the funding stuff that that just uh, messes with my mind. Um, so, if if you're lucky enough to get multiple supervisors and you can sort of have have a pick there, like what what interviewing for a supervisor even even look like? I did a presentation on this for Student Alliance, I think, oh. a couple of years ago, um, because I really liked some of the articles that came out in the Behavior Analyst in Practice, their 2016 supervision issue. And they talked about interviewing and they talked about thinking about what you want to do and what you want to get competence in. And so looking for somebody that does that and thinking about what's important to you as a practitioner, what you like, what you don't like, I learn what you kind of want to steer away from and talking with somebody about what they do and finding out whether it's what you want to do, because you're going to learn from them. And it's not that you have to kind of cookie cutter model, actually. I, when I've worked with my supervisees, I, I encourage them not to do what I do. I encourage them to change data sheets or to change programs or change formats or to change things so that when they're done supervision with me, they have their practice. They can go and do what they want to do um, because they built it in a way that resonates with them. Because I think that's important. So when you're when you're interviewing a supervisor, I, I think asking a lot about what they do and why they do it and learning a little bit more about their philosophy and their values as a practitioner, what's important to them and making sure those are in line with your own values. And I think it's not a first step to do a values-based assessment of your own needs and, and what you want to do as a practitioner. You, you, it tends to be, well, this is where I am and this is who I'm working with. And so I'm going to learn this and then I'm I'm going to go work. And I don't know that we often just intuitively start to look around and think, well, what else is out there? But I think that's important to do. And so in interviews, I would be thinking about asking about values, but first thinking about what are your values as a practitioner? What are you actually looking for? Mm. At the time of recording today, I know you you did a webinar this morning and uh, I was at that as well. You did too. That's right. And uh, one of the things that kind of resonated for me in that webinar so Hillary also, uh, in addition to supervision and mentorship, she also uh, has a specialized uh, practice uh, where her and her colleague focus on uh, sleep solutions. And so a lot of it was mm-hmm. focused on sleep. But one thing that kind of resonated for me was uh, that I kind of wanted to unpack this afternoon was this idea that you incorporate this this values-based kind of approach. And, and I don't know that everyone would understand kind of what that means. So... Mm-hmm unpack that a bit. Sure. 
it's basically acceptance and commitment training. And I've done some work. I've done mentorship of my own. So I've done some work with a practitioner that kind of worked with me on RFT and ACT and how to pull it into a supervision model because it's important to me. It kind of goes back to my supervision journey and and recognizing and being able to look back now at some of the things that I didn't like and some of the things that I want to fix and do differently and recognizing that some of that comes down to really identifying what I want to be as a practitioner and what I want to do for others and what's important to me. And ACT is based on the notion that you you act in line with your values, that you you identify what's important to you and you live a life that takes you toward those values rather than away from those values. But we know that we meet reinforcement and punishment in various ways. We know that we meet them every moment of every day because we have choices, many choices to make in our day. And we have many competing reinforcement contingencies in our day. And and those that we choose that meet reinforcement, we tend to do again. And then we develop sometimes this experiential avoidance of all these other things (laughs) that Mm -hmm. uh, we want to avoid. And when we start to avoid actions, things, events that really would take us towards our values, we run into problems. And I think in our field, because there are a lot of opinions and there are a lot of different ways of doing things, it's important to take a moment to reflect on what's really important to you. And is the person that I'm working with doing that? Mm. And maybe they're not, and that's okay. And that means that you can pivot and you could, you could go in a different direction and find somebody who will. And I think that's really important to not get stuck where I have to do it this way, or I have to do it with this person. I can look around and see if there's a better fit because maybe I don't want to practice with this population, or maybe I don't want to practice in this area. Maybe there are other things that I want to do. And I know that I'm not going to grow here. I know I'm going to learn what I need to learn to get me to a point, but I'm not going to grow. And so now I need to go find someone else. It's like when I talk with families about consultation and I talk with them really clearly about what I do well and what other people do better than me. And I tell them very clearly when we get to the stuff that other people do better than me, I'm going to, I'm going to send you to those people Hmm. um, because I can't be all for you. I can't be everything. There are things that other people are going to do much better. They have the training and expertise that I don't. And, you know, I may not be your consultant for the next 10 years. I may Hmm. be your consultant for the next few years to get you through this period that I'm good at and I can help you with but then you may have to move on to somebody else. And I think that's something to consider in supervision as well as you, you may outgrow, you may change, you may shift in what you want to do. And so you may pivot a little bit more because our values change as we experience life and your values may change in five years. And so you may need to pivot to a different area and that's okay to do as well. When you look at a values-based assessment, you're really taking a look at those things that are important to you. Um, whether it be integrity, whether it be making a meaningful difference in somebody's life. Maybe that's a value. Maybe it's a value to stick to research. That could be a value. So partly I pull that into my supervision model and work with supervisees on how to find their niche, how to find their values, and how to act in line with those values. And it's a process. Um, It's one I'm still learning too, but it's nice to be able to learn it with other people along the way. That's neat. Uh, yeah. I, I like the idea of uh, incorporating act just in general into supervision. I have been uh, kind of uh, reading a little more on that and that's certainly a realm mm-hmm. I'd like to visit more. Uh, so 
and the values piece just seems seems like a no brainer, but it's 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 uh, <laughs> it's 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 new for a lot of mm-hmm. us. Um, I know I know ACT has been around for you know decades in sort of the you know the the counseling psychology mm-hmm. field, even though it's a behavior analytic uh, sort of model initially. So maybe we can jump into if you don't mind sort of sharing a bit what your supervision model that you're developing looks like. Mm-hmm. So what I liked about my mentorship, so I went through a process of mentorship and through that process of mentorship, I felt like it was therapy. Um, for me, it wasn't, <laughs> it was not, but it felt mm-hmm. like it because I think I came to a lot of realizations and I came to a sort of a lot of moments where I was like, huh, I get it now. So we went through a process of mindful action map planning, which is um, going through the processes of act, recognizing present moment, recognizing self as context versus content, focusing on the here and now and accepting, noticing those things that are happening, and then setting out some actions that are in line with values. It helped me to kind of think of different projects and different things that I wanted to look at. So for example, I went to a yoga retreat last month, or I think, and mm. this is one of the exercises we did. So we did a values exercise. And so they gave us these little cards that had uh, core values on them. And how many were there? Uh, I want to say 49 or, or 60, something like that. Mm. So you lay them all out and you look at them all. And then they tell you, take away 10. All right. So you take away 10. You already knew which 10 you were going to do. And they tell you, okay, take away another 10. It's like, ugh. All right. So then you take away another 10. And, you know, then you take away eight and then five and, and it gets harder and harder because now you're really having to look at why is this important to me? Why is this word still here? And then you get down to five and those are kind of your, your core values. And for me, I had in my head personal when I did the yoga retreat. And so when I went through this process with my mentor, it was more supervision was in my head. So what are the things that are important to me in supervision, as opposed to thinking of my personal life? I kind of had to really think about that. Do you know what I mean? And they were different? Um, Yes. Yes and no. They overlap a bit, uh, but a bit different. For me, when I look at supervision and what's important to me, it's important for me to teach analysis, not a toolbox. It's important for me to focus on ethics and not in a way that's code-driven, meaning Mm you have to follow this to the T, but in a way that is thoughtful, in a way that is integrating your own values into this, these guidelines that you're given. Building competence was important to me, not just going through a task list. So teaching competence and making sure that that's part of what we do, that there's application and there's confidence. Teaching balance is one of my values. So trying to model, (laughs) but also actively teaching balance and and how to maintain that work-life balance, finding joy in what you do, but at the same time, balancing out your work personal and doing that from the beginning, not when you get burnt out. And then working on pivotal skills. So making sure that all of that extra stuff that's not tackled in academia or tackled in your task list is also included. Um, Organization, having difficult conversations, using a planner and kind of working through all of that with somebody. And I think as I went through the process, I realized that where my passion lies with supervision is not necessarily experience hours, that it is helping somebody at that point that 
they are going to start a practice and maybe don't have a service agreement or don't know yet how to have an intake process, don't yet know how to build their spiel on what they do because maybe they haven't done that values-based assessment or um, they aren't quite sure how to talk about it to a parent and working somebody through all of that to help them build their practice. So for me, the model that I'm designing is less about, let me take you through the task list. And it's a little bit more about, let me help you apply all of that to build your practice. And maybe this happens after your experience hours. Mm. Maybe you come see me when you're finished your experience hours, or maybe you find me in the tail end of your experience hours. And it's kind of those last few hundred that you work on really fine tuning everything and gaining some competence in certain areas. That's what I'm hoping to build and create and be a resource for. If you're collecting BACB, Continue Education Credits, for this podcast, you'll need to know the three secret words. The first secret word is competence. And, and, and I mean, that sounds super cool. Um, I, I like the idea of, uh, you know, having, you know, some different supervisors and then kind of coming to you at the end to kind of kind of tie it all together. Is there a is there a demand for that? <laughs> so like for that it's, so like I, I don't know if that's the right question because I, I don't know if even people know what they want when it comes to kind of supervision. Uh, so uh, right. yeah, uh, but but I just I wonder if uh, like some people are just like okay I, I've graduated school I got to get my fifteen hundred hours in so I can go off and you know right be be solo and then hopefully during that fifteen hundred hours they have you know, one or two, at least good supervisors that sort of guide them to the point where they realize that's not how it works. Mm. <laughs> you know, it, it's Maybe. not, it's not get your hours and, and suddenly be, you know, be solo and perfect. Um, like what, what, what made you want to, it's, I mean, it sounds like a great model. What made you think that this kind of model would be something that would be, you know, attractive to folks? Yeah. Um, a few different things. I think. I've actually come across quite a few people, whether it be here or kind of internationally, that have asked questions or have had conversations with me where at the end they've kind of taken away something similar. Like, oh, you're right. I could kind of pivot this way and I should maybe try to find this. And I realized that the conversations we were having and, and sort of where I was guiding them, I could actually make something out of that. Mm. And I don't think this is a model for everybody. I don't think this is one that's going to fall into people's laps. I think it's one that people are going to have to seek out. They're going to have to be looking for it. And in that place where they, they want that fine tuning and they want to hone in on the areas that they need help with, it isn't going to be for everybody. And Mm -hmm. I think that goes for super, most supervision, right? Like what I may get out of one supervisor, somebody else may not, right? Mm -hmm. It does need to be individual. It does need to meet your individual needs. So I think it's going to be something that, you know, if people want it, they'll find it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's definitely going to have to be some exposure and definitely, you know, through my Instagram, et cetera, Mm -hmm. some some marketing, even though that makes some people cringe when they hear that Mm -hmm. word, but we are allowed to market. For sure. You know, I think there's going to have to be a little bit of that, but I feel like this is one of those models that people will have to seek out and it will have to be something that they're committed to and is already in them. They're already looking for it. I think it's brilliant because I think 
supervision, at least from my perspective, has been very kind of uh, linear and there's one way to do it. And uh, uh, usually it's just that agency supervisor and, and uh, you know, you kind of do your thing and then move on. And then eventually maybe if you want to really learn things, you'll get a mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a really kind of smart uh, uh, dr- sort of dragon's denny kind of idea, you know, that <laughs> <laughs> or, or shark tank, depending on what country you're listening from um, <laughs> that to take something that we kind of we've been doing now for a good 20 years and tweak it, shift it up a bit. It, it doesn't have to be the sort of standard, um, mm-hmm. you know, have a supervisor for a year and move on or have two supervisors, but to have, you know, I'm here for this part or I, uh, you know, or, 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 or this kind of, cause I had a question that I wrote in kind of our, our mm-hmm. talking points and it was around, you know, supervision, you know, versus mentorship. And so I right. was going to ask, you know, do you think folks should have like multiple supervisors in a bunch of different areas mm-hmm. and then, mm-hmm. or one supervisor and go get some mentorship, but it looks like you're kind of, uh, you know, taking that idea and, and kind of combining it like it's um you know for some folks this could be supervision for some folks this could be mentorship again yeah it depends what folks are looking for and i think the idea of opening up some other some other menu options um of of ways of doing supervision i think is a really smart idea um and, and that's kind of what this kind of sounds like i mean i know for me and and i'm i'm notoriously cheap <laughs> you know, I, I've been enjoying COVID and all the free webinars. I, I, I love what Central Reach gave us full access for like two months and, you know, all those. Sorts I did of it things. too. Yep. Yeah. You know, I've, I've got well over 50, you know, credit hours and I don't renew till the end of next August. Mm. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not even looking for CEUs. And so seeking out mentorship is sort of an added cost for me that I don't really mm-hmm. know doing. And I, and I think it differs for folks like yourself that are in more of a private practice, kind of own their own practice and can kind of, you know, look at it as almost like a business expense to, mm-hmm. you know, do more mentorship. But where I work kind of in more of an agency kind of setting, I am not actively looking for that sort of thing. Whereas in supervision, I have to do it. So I think that's what I'm getting at. Supervision is something you have to do to get your BCBA. Mentorship isn't something you have to do. And so I don't know really where I'm going with this, but um, I guess the kind of the question is, 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 is it a better move? I wonder for someone to try to get just multiple supervisors that cover a whole bunch of different areas, of, but that's all in the span of a year or so, or to kind of take it slow and, and just work on some balance and, you know, seek mentorship later on as you're kind of going on. I think it kind of depends. And I think often supervision kind of eventually turns into mentorship, right? And I think the that new supervision book, Supervisor and Mentorship, LeBlanc Sellers, and how do you pronounce her last name? Lai? Yeah, yeah. A apostrophe L-I, L-A-I. Yeah, right. Yeah, Shala is her name. That's what they called her in the podcast. I was listening to the podcast um, that they did on the book. And I think they differentiated between, you know, supervision and mentorship. And I think one can turn into the other. I think when you seek out mentorship, you recognize that you're an ongoing learner and that it's an investment in what you do. And for me, when I sought out mentorship, it was recognizing that there was a piece that I needed help with and that I needed some guidance on. And I knew that it was going to make me a better supervisor. And so I felt like it was an investment in me, but also in those that I'm going to supervise down the road. And when you think of 
you supervising somebody, you think of how many they supervise and then how many they supervise, et cetera. And you realize the magnitude of the job and that it's, it's really not just the task list. It goes so beyond that. And you, you have a further reach than you think when you start supervising because you have to look down the road to how many generations you're actually supervising. Hmm. And that may sound grandiose and that may sound kind of far-fetched, but it's reality. When you look Mm -hmm. at how quickly our field is growing and how many certificates there are now than there used to be, you can see that number growing exponentially. And it's because our supervision is growing so fast. Mm -hmm. People are supervising multiple supervisees who are then going and supervising multiple supervisees. And they're not always ready to do it. And that's, I'm, I'm glad those restrictions and guidelines are coming into play because they're definitely not always ready to do it. And so you end up with, I think, um, I loved Tyra Seller's presentation that she did at BC ABBA. I know she's done it in other places too, but she, she kind of talked about unicorns and zombies. <laughs> she hmm. um, ended with the message of be the unicorn, right? So be the one that provides that quality supervision, knowing that you're going to have a tree of unicorns instead of creating a tree of zombies that do the same thing over and over again, if that makes sense. It um, totally makes sense. So I think yeah. supervisor versus mentor could actually, one could lead into the other, but mm-hmm. I do think they are different in that supervisor is typically a little bit more active learning and really going through and teaching in areas, whereas mentorship is a little bit different. It's a mm-hmm. bit of a different relationship. Um, it's less time usually mm-hmm. as well. It's less of a time commitment. Um, it's a little, not loosey-goosey, but I think it's a little bit more as needed, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of someone that's there as needed. You know, I have mentors in my life that are also my colleagues because they know stuff I don't. Um, and so when I need help, I go to them. And, you know, I kind of consider them as mentors within those topics because I know I can learn from them and then do better in those areas. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's a good point too. I mean, I, I like to think of, I guess, with mentorship, it's also it's something you're 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 actively seeking out, in, in the sense that it's it's not something you need, but it's something you want. Well, I mean, it may be something you need mm-hmm. too, but it's something you're motivated to kind of do. You're 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 you could keep practicing and never have any mentorship, and mm-hmm. you could have a long lasting career. I don't know how you know, quality it'll be, but, um, but if you're looking to sort of grow and improve, then you can go seek out mentorship. Whereas with supervision, I got to do it. I don't have a choice. And so I, I think maybe that's a piece too. With supervision, you know, I mean, actually you, you kind of found me, I, I know, uh, and I, I appreciated this. Um, so I had sort of put it out there that, you know, I was going to start supervising or that I got my first supervisee and you did. Yeah. You started posting on a whole bunch of Facebook groups asking all these questions. I did, yeah. And being a, a former supervisor of mine and now mentee or mentor, sorry, mentor, mm-hmm. I really appreciated that you, you know, uh, believed that relationship was still there and uh, and kind of reached out to me and said, hey, what's <laughs> <laughs> doing? <laughs> what, what's going on there? Because I know you haven't. <laughs> had any experience supervising and I know you haven't had any training supervising um uh, besides obviously the course you took or whatever maybe you want a little help here and and uh you know I never even considered sort of mentorship and supervision as being a thing 
you know, I'm so grateful that that we went through the process, but but it it was pretty awesome. And and so I wonder, it seems to be something that's sort of lacking from from BCBA supervision is how to supervise. Uh, you know, I think there's some training in terms of you know how to work with say behavior interventionists or RBTs, depending on what you call them, where you are. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and there's going to be some there. But as far as how to supervise other BCBAs. Um, that wasn't part of any any of the supervision that I had. Mm-mm. Is that something you think should be part of supervision? Like, should folks know how to supervise when they become a BCBA and have those skills already? Or Yeah, that's a good question in terms of the timing of it. I mean, I think I do just want to add as well that I think the only reason why I was able to say what I did to you and kind of approach yeah. you in the way I did is, is because you are so receptive. And right. I think you you are just a lifelong learner right. and in being that you're very open to new things and to people asking questions and questioning and kind of wondering, and you're very open to all of that and very curious. So um, it could have been with anybody else that fell flat, but I appreciate that you took it for what it was, which was an offer of hmm, what you doing and <laughs> giving, <laughs> giving you the support that you needed. Yeah, no, it was um, awesome. It's the timing of it. I don't know. Cause I mean, I think the interesting thing about our field and kind of the, the journey to certification is there is no set starting point. Some mm-hmm. people start as a BI, they, mm-hmm. um, they apply for a master's program mm-hmm. and they started as a BI, not knowing what the role is, um, not really having worked in, the, in that area of the field before. And so a lot of their supervision hours are spent learning how to be a BI, then learning how to train other BIs, mm. how to work with parents, learning how to design program. They're sort of, they do all of that in their supervision hours. Mm-hmm. And others start at a different point. I had been a BI for a long time by the time I got to my master's degree. And so I wasn't really learning that piece. I was learning other things. And so I think it depends on where you're at when you enter into your formal experience hours Mm -hmm. and how that's used. I think depending on where somebody is at, that starting to talk about and conceptualize what supervision could look like in other conversations is important. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's important, I think, and that's where I kind of what starting supervision, identifying those goals within supervision. So, you know, tell me what you want to do in a year and three years and five years. Mm -hmm. Do you want to supervise Mm -hmm. people eventually? Mm-hmm. And the answer might be, no, I don't. That's not on my radar. Mm-hmm. Um, or it might be, yes, I do. In which case that goal should, should kind of be at the back of your mind and be somewhere in your goals and your tracking um, to know that, okay, so you're designing this system to train a BI. So now, you know, remember you want to be a supervisor one day. So think about your own goals and how might you frame them for a supervisee or I think you remember this too. I, I, I like to encourage supervisees to develop their own tools. Mm -hmm. So if we're thinking about how are we going to track this goal of yours or how are we going to do that? It's not me handing them a data sheet and saying, well, here, enter in your goal and then take your data. It does design your goal. What does it look like? Talk about what that looks like and designing it so that it can be yours later. And you and I have also talked about tracking and mm-hmm. 
it is not the fun part of supervision. No. And it's the hard part of supervision. And it's the part that I've let go. I've realized, you know, have to kind of catch myself and come back to because it's hard. It's a lot of moving parts to supervision and to, to get it all down somewhere documented and to track it. It can be tough to stay on track mm-hmm. and to do that consistently. Uh, but I feel like if the supervisee is designing their own system, that there's a little bit more ownership there and maybe more likely to adhere to it because it resonates a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think it's different depending on the context you're in. I mean, I hear uh, like on, on these, on these, some of these supervision groups, how some folks just don't even have the time of day to do supervision or mm-hmm. they they work for yeah. agencies that don't pay them to be a supervisor, you know, mm-hmm. or you, you have to do that as well as have this massive caseload or whatever. Right. Um, and so that can become a real challenge. But I think it's, I think you make a, a good point of sort of, you know, and I think it goes back to your, your values approach, but also looking at the goals and kind of looking at what their future goals are and having those conversations. Because I know for me, and I know, well, well, you were my last supervisor. I mean, it was, it was a mm-hmm. bit different because, you know, I, I won't get too much into sort of my supervision setup, but, you know, suffice to say, you, you, you didn't have a lot of hours to, 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 to do to no. do with me um no. and so there wasn't a lot of goal redefining happening it was sort of okay no. you, you've set those goals let's just get them done and get through them but so when I came out of it you know I worked for a bit and I had no desire to be a supervisor at the time and it wasn't an option uh and then I took a break I took like a five-year break almost from yep. sort <laughs> of uh, being a BCBA in some ways um and then that, and then jumped into supervision. And again, I think yes. that was probably another red flag for you to you know, <laughs> reach out to Ben. Uh, but, but point being for me is I just, I was just like, okay, I just have to take that eight hour course. I just mm-hmm. got to take that eight hour course and then I can be a supervisor and I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. there's probably a lot of folks that, you know, don't think about supervision until it's time to be a supervisor. And then they think, okay, I just got to go take this eight hour course. So I think it's really important mm-hmm. that folks do what you're saying. And and just give folks a bit of a spiel on kind of, you know, what's involved in, in supervision and what and what, and what you got to do there. Because I, I, I really think this sort of eight hour course as a minimum is is way too low of a standard right. um, personally. And, and, you know, I think it should be should be upped a lot more. Like I think mentors, this mentorship that you and I did, you know, should almost be, you know, a requirement. Um, and it, I don't think it should be like supervision where, you know, it's. I think it should be in, in the in the framework of how you describe mentorship as as sort of a, a looser relationship, but there should still be some kind of a bit of coaching there. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think you know enough of that happens. I mean, actually, so your supervision model and 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 the mentorship you're kind of doing is it just in supervision or is it in a variety of areas? Like, what's that what's that looking like? Are you doing a model of how to train people to be a supervisor, or are you just doing a model of mentorship in whatever areas you know about? The second secret word is mentorship. Yeah, at this point, I'm doing supervision and mentorship. So I'm I'm doing a bit of a mix. So I have um, some people I work with that is mentorship and others that I work with where it's supervision. And I think what it entails is a lot more than I know that I thought it did when I started. And I feel like we're getting better at defining it. And I think, again, some of the books that have come out, uh, Kazemi's book, um, LeBong's book, I think, gives us more of a guideline and, and kind of a fuller picture of what this actually includes. 
it's hard for me to think of supervising, to be honest, more than one or two people at a time Mm -hmm. because kind of the relationship that you're building and the time you're putting into building that relationship and getting to know that person and really building a strong collaborative relationship and really looking at values and where they are in for both of you and making sure those line up, really focusing on a competency-based approach. And when you work on a competency-based approach, there's more work to it because it isn't a matter of, I heard you use the term and you used it right, or I heard you describe the term in layman's terms great. It's, I need to now see you apply this thing. I need to see you design programs around it. I need to see, to see that you can do it in different contexts, um, that you can do it, program it in different ways, et cetera. And that takes time. And I think the challenge with the way that the system's currently set up for the most part is that there really is an expectation that I'm going to do my hours and then I'm going to sit for the exam and then I'm done. And I think a big conversation I have with those that I work with is a condition of me signing your hours, not the monthly experience hours, though in some cases, yes, but through your your actual end hours, like your verification form is based on competency. And not everybody wants that kind of supervision because <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And, and in your head, you're thinking that's time. That's valuable time. And I could do this quicker or I could do this in a different route. And people go different ways and that's fine. It's, it's their supervision. It's their practice. It's what they want. But I think looking at it from a competency-based approach, meaning you take into account different things. Because now you're looking at the relationship between perhaps practitioner and client. And what does that look like? You're looking at those interpersonal relationships, but you're also now looking at how do I evaluate the effects of supervision? How do I make sure that what I'm doing is working? Because Mm -hmm. your supervisee is essentially your client. And so I need to make sure that what I'm doing is effective. And if we have no way of measuring that, what are we doing? And so I think those pieces are important to kind of pull in those pivotal skills, problem solving, organization, cultural competence, all of those areas to kind of tie into supervision as well. And then understanding when there's problems and how to fix them. And those are always hard conversations to have. How do we talk about this elephant in the room or this thing that happened and still maintain our relationship Mm -hmm. and, you know, have a good chat about it and be able to work out the kinks but still come out on the other end with the relationship that we went into it. Maybe it's different, maybe it's grown, maybe it's shifted, but still maintain it. And that can be tough. I think there's a lot more that goes into supervision than would have been expected 10 years ago. Hmm. And I, I think we've upped the ante. I think that we've set the bar higher. And now it's a matter of kind of getting that field on board and getting everybody mm-hmm. up there too, which yeah, takes work. Absolutely. It takes work. It does take time to build the measures and time to have these conversations around it. And, you know, it's what you put into it, right? What you put Mm -hmm. into it is what you get out of it. Yeah, no, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Competency. So there, 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 this is a big, a big word lately. Um, (laughs) uh, I think it feels like it, it feels like a word that hasn't always been there. And now it's there a lot more. Competency mm. and scope. Scope and competency seem to be these. In fact, I think one of those, um, one of those supervision books that you, you referenced actually has scope yes. and competency somewhere in the title. And uh, I hear people refer to this. And so, so what, what's your competence in, say, ACT or 
you know, or verbal behavior or whatever the area is. Um, and then I hear people talk about scope. And then so some people will say, you know, well, I, you know, I need more mentorship um, so that I can become, you know, more competent in this area. And then I hear other people say, well, that's not in my scope. Um, and, and, and I get confused. Uh, <laughs> what's, what, what is scope? What is competence? What's the difference? Well, I think it's, it's actually scope of practice, scope of competence. So I think who defined it? Was it maybe Matthew Broadhead did? Hmm. Somebody defined it. That sounds, um, that sounds like that might be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds to be about right. Scope of practice is our task list. So mm. our scope of practice is what our certification board regulates. It is our task list. That big, big thing is our scope of practice because it's broad, right? Your scope of competence is what you have specific training in and what education you have in a specific area and what mentorship you received in a specific area. So and I do believe, and I'm just looking on my desk here, I do believe that it was um, Matthew Broadhead who talked about it in his Practical Ethics for Effective Treatment of ASD. I'm pretty sure mm. he talked about it in there. Somebody else talked about it too. I'll have to find the reference. Yes, he did. Chapter four, identifying your scope of competence. Yeah. Um, yeah. Scope of practice versus scope of competence. So I think when he talks about competence, he talks about coursework, setting, and supervision. And so he talks about education, training, and supervisory experiences. So that might be something that ties back to your question about supervisors and how do you interview a supervisor. So if I want to know that somebody knows what they're talking about in a certain area, I might want to ask them, who do you specifically work with? In what setting do you work? You know, what kind of uh, courses, training, training, et cetera, did you receive in this area? He goes through some questions to ask yourself to kind of figure out whether you have competence in a specific area. I did a webinar with. Mark Dixon a while back on ACT, and he he talked about competence in ACT, which I really appreciated because he did lay out, not too, too specific, but he did lay out, you should have coursework. You should have had done some training. You should yes. have done some coursework of some kind. I remember this one. Yeah. Yeah. You should, you should know the literature. You should be going through the literature, doing your research, and you should have had some sort of mentorship and some sort of active training. So not just reading the literature and taking a course, but some practical application where you've had some experience. That's what we did with sleep. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you're kind of, you're practicing on someone. Mm -hmm. And you don't really want to practice on an autistic child. And you don't right. really want to practice on a new supervisee that's then going to go train other supervisees. Mm -hmm. But that's what we did. Uh, but now we know better. <laughs> so now we should be doing better. But that's the difference. Scope of practice would be the larger umbrella of behavior analysis. And the competence would be, you know, so somebody may have competence in OBM. Somebody may have competence in feeding. Um, it's all under the task list, but this is where I have my specific training. Mm -hmm. But then, so, okay. With scope of practice then, are, are, it sounds like there's sort of things that you did mentorship in for the sleep piece. Um, you know, so you, I mean, in that webinar, you talked a lot about a lot of the kind of biological stuff and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, sleep cycles and, um, you know, a whole bunch of uh, really interesting things. I, I, that whole uh, adenosine 
piece. Again, I, I don't want to touch on it too much because we'll save that for another podcast. But all that stuff sounds like it's not within the scope of practice. You know what I mean? Like that, that's 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 right. So uh, how are we? How is that okay? <laughs> how is it okay for us <laughs> to to do stuff with that if it's not in our scope of practice? Like I, I guess I'm, what, what's the point of a scope of practice if we're still allowed to do things outside of it? It's not a scope of practice to be a medical professional saying that I can medically treat sleep, mm. but that's not what I'm saying. Right. I had to learn about sleep to understand how to change sleep. I see. I can't go into dog training and know nothing about animals. So I'm going to learn about animals. I'm going to understand that part of it right. in whatever way I have to. Maybe I need to mentor with another animal trainer. Maybe I need to, et cetera, right? Uh, I'm going to go do okay. all those things. It's not that I'm practicing as, as that. It is that I'm pulling in that knowledge mm-hmm. to apply it in this other thing that I'm doing right. where I'm going to apply behavior analysis. Right. So all the stuff that we did around sleep, I'm not a sleep expert. Meaning sure. I don't know all there is to know about sleep, nor do I say I do. Yeah. But I specialize in sleep treatment. Sure. Which I can do under my scope of practice as a behavior analyst and under gotcha. my now competence in knowing what I do about sleep, looking into the research across various journals. So not just our journal, life does not exist just within our behavior analytic bubble. Mm-hmm. And then getting some mentorship. Okay. So two things I want to ask. Or comment. So that, that makes sense. So like in terms of scope of practice, again, uh, well, I don't want again, I'm going to keep jumping back into the sleep area because uh, that's what you were talking about. But say, mm-hmm. I know one thing a lot of people talk about in sleep is melatonin. Um, and yeah. so I, I know you guys have, you know, a lot of knowledge about that. But when it comes to actually, you know, you need melatonin, that's not in your scope of practice because that's a medical professional. Is that is that right? right. But you yeah, can no, talk. I can't prescribe it. I can't tell somebody they need it. Nope. But you could talk about the effects of it and what it does from what you've read and what you've learned and and then and then make a recommendation that someone go see a, a professional in that area that's in, and that's in their scope of practice. Yeah, okay, that, that I think yep. that makes sense um, to me now. You talked about uh, you just touched on something else that I've been hearing a lot. Actually, I heard in your webinar again this morning, and I heard when I was listening to. Uh, I think it was on the Behavior Observations podcast uh, on, on mm-hmm. trauma with Camille Kolu. It's an amazing podcast, by the way, if you haven't heard it. It was really good. Yeah, um, I heard it. And, and she does what you also did as you talked about some journals and sort of other fields and other kind of specialties mm-hmm. that weren't behavior analytic. Are there journals or research that folks can, that you that you access in, in terms of supervision? or other sorts of just maybe not journals, but other, other kind of resources mm-hmm. beyond, you know, those three supervision books that are out there that are specifically rated to our field. Like do you look at other stuff just related to general leadership and supervision or. Yeah. I've accessed some leadership stuff. Um, bringing out the best in people was one, of course, by Aubrey Daniels. I've done some reading online and, and looked at different articles around motivation and conflict resolution and kind of dived into different topics because it's a large area. And I think that's the challenge with supervision too, is, is to try to teach some pivotal skills, et cetera. There's just a lot to dive into mm-hmm. and you can go down the rabbit hole pretty quickly. Sure. Um, so I've accessed a lot of that kind of stuff. I've done, you know, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and I've done some webinars that kind of inform me a little bit better in terms of cultural sensitivity and some of the stuff that's going on with ABA reform um, mm-hmm. and just kind of having all of that knowledge that I apply to my own practice, but that I can also pull into conversations 
to kind of guide supervisees with these are some things you need to consider moving into this field and kind of moving into this practice. Not really telling them what they should think, but they should be on your radar. Yeah. These are some things that you should know. So there's more to it than I think just our behavior analytic literature and our stuff. Mm-hmm. With really anything that we do, there's usually other people that know stuff too in the area. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, I think for us, you know, when it comes to like our principles and when it comes to our the theories of learning, et cetera, that, you know, some of that is squarely in our field and we kind of go into our literature, but there's a lot of other people that do it too. They just talk about it differently. And that's valid. That goes back to Pat Fryman in some of Greg Hanley's talks on, you know, we've, we really missed the boat in some areas because we were so stuck on our field and behavior analysis and talking the terms and, you know, sounding like that. And, and really there's a lot of people that are doing stuff that you could say is in our field and it's really applied behavior analysis. It just, they're doing it differently and better and in ways that is more palatable, but they're doing it. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's a whole other conversation for sure on how we could (laughs) be marketing ourselves better. I know actually we're, you and I are in, we're involved in an online chat about that maybe mm-hmm. yesterday or today too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, uh, absolutely. So, so there's something else that's kind of, uh, you touched on briefly um, and you've mentioned to me before actually plays a role in your supervision. I know you're, you're a big, uh, you're big into Instagram, um, which is an area that I Boy. am not. Yes. I don't avoid, I don't avoid. I just, I, well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't take a lot of pictures and I don't draw things. So uh, Instagram seems to be a lot more visual than uh, some of the other ones. I, I seem to be more of the typer than the, than the uh, graphic designer. Right. Um, now I know, I know there's definitely some things out there that make uh, Instagram a lot easier to use as far as creating graphics. And I've learned about mm-hmm. those, but how does Instagram sort of play a role in or inform your supervision framework and model? Uh, a lot. And I was surprised by that. <sighs> kind of when did this all start? It started, I would say probably around the time. So I have two kids. One is four, one is six. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I had my six-year-old, I had, well, I was on bed rest. And that's actually when I took my supervision course. So that was about 2016. Mm. So when it was, when it was required, right. It wasn't required before that. So that was kind of when I took my, I remember I finished it up on bed rest. And then I had him and kind of took a few months off and I found Megan Miller and I found her stuff and Mm -hmm. yeah, things started to shift. And then I went back to work and I had like this foggy year or two and then (laughs) had my second, um, and realize, I mean, there was really a period of time where postpartum depression had me in a really weird place. But mm. that's kind of when I started to follow some of the Facebook groups and to follow some stuff and learn a little bit more about what people do outside of BC. And mm. um, there is really a whole other world out there. And what? Um, it was really interesting to learn more and to hear different opinions and to see conversation and discussion on different things because. That's not something we've really done in our community. Um, mm-hmm. We haven't really had discourse around what we do and how we do it and um, how to serve our community as a whole. So um, I kind of got into all of that and <laughs> then at some point learned what I needed to step back from and <laughs> what was too overwhelming. But then I started Instagram and I kind of mm-hmm. did it on a whim um, and I did it 
I wouldn't say Nicole kind of, she didn't push me into it, but she was definitely gently nudging me into it. Mm. And yeah, so I started Instagram and Instagram for me just became a place to just put stuff that was bugging me about the field or that was neat, right? Oh, that's cool. That's something I should remember. Or, you know, and and at first I just did a lot of kind of sharing of stuff and um, I wasn't really doing a lot of posts, but then I started to really get into it. Um, And I I initially started doing Instagram because I kind of was coming back to work and I was kind of revamping after my second, I was kind of revamping what I wanted to do. And I was kind of thinking, okay, well, I kind of want to come up with a trade name and I kind of want to rebrand myself a little bit. And I kind of want to think about my values and what I want to do. And I was kind of going through that journey. Now it's a place of, what is it for me? It is a very different community and vibe than Facebook. Hmm. It's a very supportive community. I've met tons of other BAs um, on Instagram. It's a place where I feel like I can disseminate safely and I can really share my own values as a practitioner Hmm. and really kind of make a difference in a way. And that's just through the comments that I get and the messages that I get and kind of the engagement. It's also a place where I've been able to, and it's funny, it came up in my measure because the question was, well, what is, you know, what does Instagram do for you? What role does that play? And I think it gives me an outlet to talk about those things that are important to me. Do you know what I mean? Like to be able to talk about them in a way where you, you can kind of put it out there and Mm -hmm. get some feedback and have a conversation around it. It's been really cool, surprisingly. I was mm. stunned when I actually liked it. Um, and I'm stunned that I do it, to be honest. Well, why do you think it is that Instagram is so much kinder, I guess, and, and yeah. so much of a safer environment Jeez. than sort of other? I think because, and I mean, I don't know what Instagram is. I'm sure that, you know, there's IRs that aren't, but yeah. I think it's the platform. It's a bit different. Mm. It's not so conversationalist. Right. Meaning like Facebook, you have these long threads of just, I'm going to respond back to you. And then I'm going to make my point down here. And and it's just, Mm -hmm. it's a lot. I think Instagram, you have a following, like you have a community. Um, And I know that's what the groups are supposed to be, but they end up going nasty, most of them. But you, you end up with a bit of a community and follower because you follow people that resonate with you and Mm -hmm. they follow you because you somehow resonate. And so you end up with a really good mix of information that just kind of thrives in that bubble. Um, like I did with the behavior nerds, <laughs> hashtag behavior nerds. So there's um, a group of behavior analysts where we've done a few different kind of, the one that we, the first one we did, oh, ABCs of ABA. Right. Right. So we all did posts on, it was, and that was a hectic month. So we did <laughs> 20, 26 posts um, up through the alphabet of different terms. So we all agreed on mm. the terms we were going to do. And then, so you got a different take on what everybody had. Everybody mm. had a different way of describing it and talking about it. Um, so we did that. We did the week on parent training. I'm doing another one on holidays coming up with another group of behavior analysts. So um, we're all coming together to work on something. So it's, it's much more community driven, I find, than a lot of the Facebook groups that are out there. I have to know what the Z and X words were. Ooh, <laughs> what were they? <laughs> if any. Yes, there were. Or was X not the first letter? Maybe. Well, it went chronologically. Yeah. For sure. O S T U W. I did what TF, not mm-hmm. what the function. Yep. 
is what the function WTF. We did do X. Where is it? Hmm. I'll have to find them. Yeah. Interesting. So back to sort of that original question, how does that kind of inform your supervision practice? I mean, it, it, it definitely sounds like you're, 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 mm. you're, you're, you found a nice community and it's fun and it's a great place to kind of, you know, share new ideas and, uh, and, and develop relationships. I mean, it sounds awesome. And if I ever get the motivation, I might check it out. Um, uh, <laughs> but I know you've said to me before that Instagram kind of does play a role in your practice. Yeah. And, and The third secret word is joy. I think a lot of what Instagram did was help me find my values as a supervisor and what was important to me and knowing that um, dissemination was important and right. you know toolbox thinking was important. That critical piece was important. It kind of helped me figure out what I like to talk about and what where my passion was, mm-hmm. which then helps you figure out what you want to do with that. So figuring out my values kind of helped me figure out that I do like Instagram for various reasons and I can kind of meet my values by engaging in Instagram and the community there. Um, but it also helps me design a supervision program because it helps me figure out those areas that I want to teach and talk about in supervision. Mm. Um, so I've done posts on cultural sensitivity. I've done posts on, or I will be doing a post on person first versus identity first language. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. So probably get, getting close to maybe wrap it up. I had a couple of questions just sort of around folks maybe that are thinking about either becoming a supervisor uh, a BCBA supervisor, or or maybe even offering up mentorship. Um, so, mm-hmm. what what's what sort of advice do you give to someone who's you know maybe like myself who was keen to now get into supervision and really all they've done is is taken that course? What would I say? I would say read the 2016 behavior in analysis. No behavior analysis. It's man, I have done a lot of talking today. Yeah, no, the behavior analysis and practice 2016 issue. Yeah. Yes, of supervision. Yeah. Go through those articles because they give you perspective from both supervisee and supervisor and mm. will probably have you thinking about some things um, and whether you're ready to be a supervisor. Mm-hmm. Look at time commitment and make sure you have it um, mm. because it sometimes will go beyond just the bare minimum of percentage that you're required to do. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, you know, back work of, you know, finding articles or finding resources or thinking of prepping for, you know, a meeting. There's kind of indirect time that goes into supervision that you Mm -hmm. kind of have to account for. So making sure you have the time to put it in, right? And making sure you have opportunities to give to your supervisee, right? Like, can I actually give them areas and, and tasks and opportunities to build competence? Mm-hmm. Or do I maybe not have those opportunities for them? There was a time when I declined a couple of requests for supervision because I didn't have any room on my teams and I didn't really have enough teams to, for them mm-hmm. to practice. And that can sometimes be a barrier to finding supervision in BC is, is caseload in practice. Yeah. And that's partly why I've shifted my model a little bit is to take into account that, you know, I don't, with this type of model, I don't have to have a caseload because I'm Mm -hmm. consulting to them and their caseload. So I don't necessarily have to have my own caseload for them to work on. So I would encourage that. I would encourage looking at the books and supervision, doing a lot of prep, 
<laughs> honestly, doing a lot of prep and really thinking about what are your values as a supervisor? What do you want to do? Mm-hmm. What do you want to teach? What do you want to impart? And what's important to you? Because mm-hmm. I think just as much as a supervisee is going to interview you, you're also making sure that you're a good fit for them. Mm-hmm. And you got to know yourself well to do that. And you got to know what you can do well so that you can make that decision. Do you think uh, a year of practice is enough? No, mm. I don't. I don't because I think in that year, you're still figuring yourself out and you're still making mistakes. Mm-hmm. You're still yeah. figuring out, oh, I should have had that and I should have done this. And, oh, I want to do this a bit differently. And you're still finding your footing, depending on your history, depending on what else you've done. I mean, that may not be mm-hmm. the case, but sure. You know, I don't think it should be based on I've had this certification for this time period. Mm-hmm. But I think the BACB also struggles to really define when are you ready? So they've given mm-hmm. a time limit or they will have a time limit at least to give a cushion of don't just write the exam and then start supervising. Mm-hmm. They're giving some sort of cushion um, to suggest that people really make a thoughtful decision here as to whether or not mm-hmm. you're ready for supervision. I think it becomes difficult when... You know, it, it, you're you're in a you're you're kind of in the the greater Vancouver area, which is you mm. know a, a major metropolis for mm. our province, where others are you know you know rural. I know like uh, the the last intern that I had is is the only practicing behavior analyst in the whole city of a hundred thousand people that they live in, and so you know as soon as they became certified, I imagine. Uh, the demands just started rolling in for supervision. And so it could be, it could be challenging to say no and, mm-hmm. and, and set that boundary um, and say, sorry, you're going to have to get supervision in a different city because, you know, I'm not ready to give you that. I agree. Like, I think there probably is a bit of pressure and there's probably pressure too, when you think of agencies of, you know, well, you know, mm-hmm. you need supervision and you're working here and I want to use, keep working here. So I need to provide you with supervision, but maybe I'm yeah. full. Maybe I don't have the time. Yeah but I want you to stay. Yeah. So I'm going to yeah. say yes. And, you know, does that really mean there's going to be quality supervision? Probably not. And geographically, you know, there's nobody else. It's also sitting in that discomfort and recognizing mm-hmm. that I want to do the right thing, but is the right thing really entering into a supervisory relationship where I know I'm not going to be able to do my all and mm-hmm. the quality may not quite be there. Is it okay to st- sit in that discomfort for a little bit and kind of be like, yeah, that's a yucky mm-hmm. feeling I'm having right now. And I really don't want to upset this person. But at the same time, ugh, it feels yucky to do this other thing and, mm-hmm. and sometimes make that tough decision that yep. I'm going to have to decline. I'm not going to be Move towards. You. Yeah. Move yeah. towards your values. And, and those are hard yeah. decisions to make sometimes because yeah. it's uncomfortable. Usually the really big ones are kind of uncomfortable. Um, you got to weed through all of that <laughs> to get to... Right you know, kind of find the courage to make that decision that may not be the popular one. Hmm. So I think, you know, and then sort of the second part of the question kind of around mentorship, it seems like just with all the the different things, like having the caseload, having the time, having, you know, all those pieces, it seems like if you kind of wanted to get into, you know, supporting others in some way, maybe mentorship might be an easier way to go because you don't have to, like, like you said, you don't have to, they don't have to be part of your caseload. You can sort of mentor them on their own caseload, or you can, uh, you know, mentor them on a particular area that's related to their caseload. So that mentorship might be more accessible for folks. Mm-hmm. I wonder. 
so mentorships, so mentorship has been something I've been, you know, afraid of. I'm, I'm not considering being a mentor right now by any means. I certainly don't have the time to put anything more on my plate, but I've often, you know, come in contact with sort of, you know, re- either requests, not directly, but just, would you, would you be willing to add your name to a pool of people to be mentors in different areas? You know, I've always said no, mm-hmm. um, because I don't know. And maybe this is sort of the imposter syndrome piece kind of coming in for me. I don't know that I would be, you know, skilled enough to be a mentor and I'm not looking for validation in my question here, but <laughs> it's, it's more, it's more, it's more, uh, like, how, how do you know you're ready to be a mentor? Yeah. Well, I think it's how you define mentorship too. Mm. Whether you kind of have the skill set. I always think it, I used to think of, of mentorship as, um, you know, you kind of got to be old and you kind of got to be, you know. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, absolutely. Right. Like, really? Like, when I'm, when I'm 80, ages. I will be a mentor. Yeah, yeah that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> think of mentorship a little bit more as guidance. So it's not necessarily mm. supervision, meaning it's not active learning. It's not direct mm. teaching. It's not direct accountability. It's not mm-hmm. overseeing something. Mentorship mm-hmm. is a little bit more about guiding mm-hmm. and counseling and providing advice. So it's a different responsibility mm-hmm. and it's a different relationship. And it's a different skill set because you're not taking on the onus of teaching, supervising, and making sure that that case looks how it should, kind of, you know, overseeing mm-hmm. directly. You're really working with the individual, the mentee. You're working more with them and their skills and guiding them. So it's a bit different. It's a different relationship. And I think it is a different skill set. And I think you kind of have to look at what skills are needed there and whether you Mm -hmm. actually can provide that kind of guidance. But I think they are two different roles. I think they are two different responsibilities. Yeah. And I could see sort of maybe being a supervisor first, uh, Mm. you know, because then, you know, and I'm, I guess I'm using our example, uh, because then you can start developing some relationships with folks and you may just end up becoming a mentor sort of mm-hmm. after the fact, you know, mm-hmm. as you sort of did with me. And as, as many, you know, sort of, you know, we see this a lot. I think we see this a lot in academics where, you know, you, you get your master's degree or PhD or whatever, but your, your supervisor at your school often becomes a mentor someone you can kind of go to after and ask questions because you've already built that relationship. Mm. Yep. I think it would be cool. I mean, I know you got a lot on your plate, but uh, (laughs) I think it would be cool one day if, if maybe you put together your own kind of BCBA supervision course, like the eight hour course. Wouldn't that Uh, be cool? It would be, it would be just because I don't think, I mean, I get the the difficulty about sort of that is uh, about sort of analyzing these courses is anyone who takes a course never takes anyone else's course, right? right. Like, like I, I took the fit course, right? Mostly because it had the most free resources to go with it. Um, <laughs> and it was a good price. Uh, right. But, you know, other people talk about some other different ones that are quite common and no one's ever, I don't, I don't think there's too many folks out there that have compared them because you only need one. Right. But I would hazard to guess, you know, unless, of course, you know, there's some folks maybe, you know, like Tyra Sellers and others that are still doing supervision that, there isn't a lot of a lot of act components in these supervision courses, mm-hmm. and that sort of values based approach. I, I just think I think there there I think you you could really bring some interesting aspects to a supervision course that uh, you know, and maybe that'll you know, like you said, your 
you're young, so maybe in 10 years, right. you'll come up with something funky. Uh, but I think we could use some more that are in that realm. I agree. And I think it's tied into um, the book, Supervisor and Mentor, the book that just came out. Um, there's actually yeah. quite a bit of it in there. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's actually some stuff out there on Supervision and Act to kind of tie, oh, to tie very it good. It's not, I wouldn't say robust, mm-hmm. but I think it's been a work in progress mm-hmm. to try to meld those two things together. And really help supervisors kind of find who they are and find their niche in, in their own practice so that they can better mm-hmm. help others do the same. Sure. Um, so there's definitely some stuff out there, but I hear you. I think it would be great to have some resources that are a little bit more geared towards accessibility, right? Where it wouldn't just mm-hmm. be, I have to actually work with you. <laughs> it's that um, I can get this course, but that would only serve one area of competence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel mm-hmm. like a course like that would also have to lead to some sort of practicum or some sort of right. leadership piece. Yeah, which I think would be cool if the mm-hmm. maybe if the BACB got to the point where that was required, you know, mm-hmm. where it's not just the course, but you've got to now prove that you can be a supervisor. Um, I know they have to have kind of minimums for a bunch of different reasons, but um, mm-hmm. especially I think as they, and you know, I won't get into this too much, but as they as they move towards sort of consolidating, you know, the, the regions that they're supporting folks in, you know, uh, I think they might have the ability to up their standards some more. It's one thing when you have to support behavior analysts living in a, you know, like India where there's a billion people and three behavior analysts and you got to be careful how strict you make your, your rules. But once it becomes sort of a, you know, a North America only, I think they, they, they really have the, the ability to up the requirements. Hopefully that's in the plans, but you know, I don't know. I've been talking with a group of colleagues for the last year or so about about such a thing and kind of how to make that happen. And I thought it was interesting. We realized that there's actually no special interest group for supervision. Huh. There's a special interest group for pretty much uh, most other um, topics, mm-hmm. but not for supervision. Um, so I think this is really an area in our field that has been kind of overlooked and mm-hmm. has, I think, really contributed in some part to why there is a need for all of these other <laughs> special interest groups and for all of these other mm-hmm. kind of statement papers and kind of um, messages and, and what we need to address is because yeah. the root of it is we haven't really addressed supervision and how we're teaching each other. We're just growing without a ton of really clear guidelines. Mm-hmm. Well, there's the call then. Someone needs there to start a supervision sig right there. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be Hillary right now, but uh, in the works. But someone out there needs to get that going because you're right. That 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 would be the first step towards um you know some bigger changes. Absolutely, that's awesome. So much good stuff. Is there anything else, maybe just as parting, that you might like to share on supervision for folks? Or no, I think I'm good. I yeah. think we covered a lot. You did a great yeah, job interviewing. Well, you did a great job answering. Um, I will say um, this is a, a CEU uh, earning podcast, and, and I'm excited to offer a supervision CEU, which is fun. Nice. And uh, I also, uh, you, you mentioned a lot of great resources, which I jotted down and will be including everything in the show notes that uh, you mentioned from everything from mindful action, map planning to LeBlanc uh, to Broadhead and several other things that are. And I've written in here. So that'll all be included for folks to find. Perfect. Um, so thanks so much, Hillary. So, so great for you to meet with me, especially after such a long day of Zooming. Um, <laughs> uh, much appreciated. You, the Zoom fatigue did not come off in your voice. Um, I'm sure it will at the moment we 
stop pressing record. Right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, once again, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, so thanks again, Hillary, and uh, have a great day. Thanks, Ben. It's been fun.